Welcome to Biota.org Interviews. I'm Tom Barbelay, and today I have the pleasure of talking with Professor Douglas Davis, who's an Emeritus Professor of Psychology at Haverford College. Professor Davis, for people not familiar with your background, can you please give some discussion to your career and your current research interests? Yes. I'm, uh, my PhD from the University of Michigan is in a field called personality psychology, which is a very small piece of the sort of softer human end of psychology. And traditionally it was two things. It was attempts in the 20th century, most notably by Freud, but then there were a lot of others, to develop comprehensive theories about how human beings developed individual personhood, how they developed character, style, temperament, uh, gave a flavor to their lives, and so on. And there was a lot of that work over a period of many years, and I, that's something I taught consistently for 34 years at Haverford. The field also includes personality assessment. It was personality psychologists who sort of defined themselves after the First World War around attempts to measure intelligence in a draft setting and then to use those tests to do other kinds of measurements, and that led to attempts to speak to the theories of the theoretical psychologists by asking people to complete various uh, controlled measures of behavior, we call them paper and pencil tests, and then to infer things about their personalities. And since that literature uh, produced by the personality assessment types is a major part of the ongoing controversy about measurement of intelligence and multiple intelligences and so on, it impacts in a way questions of, of, artificial, uh, of artificial life. But primarily, uh, my role in the Haverford, Bryn Mawr, Swarthmore, we're talking about three small liberal arts colleges in the suburbs of Philadelphia, was to represent the classic psychodynamic theories of people like Freud. They're called psychodynamic because the assumption is that conscious mental life, what you would report if someone said, tell me exactly what you're thinking exactly as you think it, and you attempted to do that, turns out to be impossible. But to the extent you could do it, your conscious life is just the tip of the iceberg of what's going on psychologically. Uh, Freud's conception is still kind of interesting. It was a three-way conception. He said, let's imagine that there's the contents of consciousness, which uh, he was writing all this uh, 50 years ahead of the new American cognitive psychology of the 1960s, so he didn't use their terminology, but basically in consciousness you can hold a few uh, verbal tags, you can, uh, you can imagine the rest of the sentence that you're in the midst of uttering, uh, you can be suddenly distracted by some thought about what's going on outside, but you can only understand human consciousness if you assume that there's a vast region of things that we can't be conscious of all at once, but they're accessible to consciousness. Freud called that the preconscious, or in German, the Vorbewusst. And that is the entire catalog of things that we could tell an interviewer if we wanted to, exp to explain our lives for us. Well, I was born in such and such a place. My parents did this. I believe I was nurtured in this way. I suffered the following traumas and achieved these successes. I tend to think about these things. My favorite authors are. <clears throat> for a clue to the content of people's preconscious, look at MySpace and look at Facebook in particular. Facebook is a kind of relentless recounting of all the things that might coincide with one of your interests. And underneath the conscious and the preconscious was the great bulk of what Freud called the unconscious. And the unconscious for Freud is not only not conscious, but it can't become conscious directly. It only becomes conscious indirectly. So roughly, the, uh, 
pre- the conscious is primordial urges and deeply repressed uh, memories and so on, it can only reach consciousness by the indirect route of representing itself symbolically, usually under circumstances of reduced cognitive control, because the unconscious, uh, one thinks of sex when one thinks of Freud, but it's really a repository of all the, the erotic and aggressive potentials of every individual, and if those thoughts and wishes were expressed directly, they'd be um, problematic for the individual and problematic for human society. So we've learned not to know them. They express themselves, however, when we exercise fantasy, when our guard is down, and uh, the regular event of sleep with its recurrent dream images uh, fascinated Freud as a kind of counterpart to what happened when a patient abreacted when they started to talk about all the circumstances that led up to the first time they suffered this particular form of anxiety or hysterical paralysis or whatever it was. So that approach to psychology, it's a very small part of American academic psychology, and I think it's fair to say it's probably getting smaller. It doesn't fit very well with the experimental traditions of American psychology, and people tend to want to address much, much smaller questions that are tractable to laboratory control. But, and this is where we can maybe get to a little bit later, we suddenly have access to masses of rich personal data, not right from the unconscious, but richly uh, loaded with uh, images and things that might allow us to guess something about people's unconscious lives in the form of what they blog and how they uh, create a presence for themselves online, the trails that they leave in uh, massively multiplayer games and so on. So I got interested um, in the late 80s as the Internet became more of a household word and then very intensely in the middle 90s when we had a functioning World Wide Web and and the beginning of quite ambitious interactive role-playing games. I got interested in personal web pages on the one hand, what we now call blogs, and interactive game environments, uh, think EverQuest at the turn of the 21st century, as places where people would project themselves, where they would reveal their personhood and explore it in some kind of collaboration with other people. And it began to occur to me that personality psychology, as I learned it in the 1960s, involved doing it the hard way. You had to browbeat your freshmen and sophomores in intro psych into coming into the lab and filling out questionnaires and so on, suddenly people are providing us with these data in their tens of millions, and they're free if we only knew what sense to make of them. So I began to try to think about 1994, uh, when a Haverford graduate named Brian Natz created the first online weekly features magazine in the internet. It was called Webster's Weekly, and I wrote a psychology column for, oh, I don't know, about 14, 15 uh, editions in which I tried to imagine how this new technology was going to impact the questions that interested me as a psychologist. Now, you've touched on a couple of these aspects briefly, but you had a paper that related to Freud's interpretation of dreams and how it related to virtual worlds. For people not familiar with Freud, his work in interpretation of dreams, and your work with regards to how it related to virtual worlds, You've touched on this a little bit, but can you give a, a full discussion to that? Well, let's see. Um, I, I should say, by the way, if anybody who listens to this podcast wants to approach these subjects in a somewhat more systematic way, although I'm uh, 
retired from teaching at Haverford, I still live on campus and I still maintain my Haverford College web pages. And for many years, I developed a course page for every course I taught. And one can literally listen to Doug Davis uh, lecture uh, for several hours about the origins of Freud's theory and how it relates to dreams and so on. But, but let me try to give a couple of illustrations that may help people get started thinking about this. And by the way, the Interpretation of Dreams is a book that um, academic and practicing psychoanalysts treat as if it were a scientific work of some kind, or at least a work as scientific as Darwin's Origin of Species. I think it's better to regard it as the first postmodern novella. And what I started suggesting to my students in the late 90s in seminar was Freud wrote the interpretation of dreams for the World Wide Web. And the only reason that nobody knew that is he didn't call it the World Wide Web. But the notion of hypertextuality is central to the way Freud approaches a dream. So the first thing you do is you get as clear a record as you can of what the dreamer remembers of the dream. Let's take Freud's own most famous dream. It's the summer of 1895. His pregnant wife, Martha, has taken the kids out to a resort outside Vienna where it's slightly cooler. Freud's feeling sorry for himself because he can't join them for a few more days, and he's got various thoughts on his mind about his patients and colleagues and so on, and he falls asleep. And during, his, uh, during the night, he has a dream, and in the dream, he's at the place where Martha, his wife, and the kids are, and he and his wife are throwing a large party. And at the party, there are many guests, but suddenly he notices among them a patient of his, a female patient, whom he calls Irma, and he takes her aside, he says, as though to admonish her about something and to uh, question her about her symptoms. And she says, I've still got these terrible pains, and, and it's choking me, and so on. And Freud, in the dream, becomes anxious. This isn't really what Irma's condition was, but what are these pains, and so on. And he, he has her open her mouth after he's uh, tapped on her chest. And, and uh, in her mouth, he sees some curious curly structures that remind him of bones in the nose. And then he calls in some physician friends, an older colleague who's been a real protector and mentor to Freud and lent him money and so on and helped him out and, and consoled him about his long engagement to, uh, his, to his wife, and uh, a couple of his colleagues with whom he was in medical school, and they all make stupid diagnoses about what's wrong with her. She's got dysentery, but no matter, it'll all pass out through the body and then she'll be fine and so on. And then Freud um, begins to have, in the dream, various thoughts about what's really wrong with her. And in the dream, he thinks to himself, one of my young friends, my colleagues, must have given her an injection. And in the injection, there must have been something. And then he's in the dream, he's puzzled about what it was, propyl, propyl, propionic acid. And suddenly, he says in reporting this dream, he sees before his eyes the chemical formula for trimethylamine, an organic compound. And then he wakes up. Well, what does this dream mean? Freud, the dreamer, and the guy who's working on a book on dreams, treats himself as if he were his own patient. And he says to himself, as it were, tell me everything that comes into your head. And the interpretation goes on for a number of pages, but it becomes apparent that the theme of Martha's pregnancy and her possible bad health and the consequences of it is very much on Freud's mind. Not surprisingly, particularly given that this was an unintended pregnancy, and uh, that he wasn't sure that Martha was healthy enough to become pregnant. This is also a man who has been writing for some years now about the dangers of sexual non-fulfillment in marriage and its tendency to produce neurosis. 
And if we look closely at Freud's correspondence, he doesn't say this specifically in the dream, there are issues about the use or non-use of contraception. In any case, the idea that sexual activity can lead to physical problems is a theme on Freud's mind. There's also a complicated set of feelings about this young woman patient where Freud realizes that she actually seems to be a composite of several people. She reminds him, as he starts to think about the dream, she reminds him of his pregnant wife and some of her uh, pregnancy symptoms. She reminds him of his daughter, uh, Matilda, named by the way for the senior colleague who performs the uh, mistaken diagnosis. Uh, and the daughter has displayed symptoms like the choking feelings of the patient when she had diphtheria. So there's a fear about a physical illness causing potential fatal symptoms. And there's a fear of misdiagnosis, and there's a desire to attribute the misdiagnosis to other people. So there's a reproach, and Freud uses the word reproach repeatedly in discussing the dream, directed at his medical colleagues. And finally, there's a, there's a deep desire not to be himself responsible for the problems of Irma. Well, behind the scenes that Freud doesn't get to in his dreams is a friend in Vienna who has a theory that all uh, neuroses have uh, something to do with the olfactory system and so on. And one, it turns out eventually that one, can, uh, one could write a book, at least a short book, about this dream as a window into Freud's biography. And what Freud himself seems to have been astounded first and then delighted by is that every human being provides such rich data over and over again every night of their lives if we only were paying attention. He also builds an analogical structure between the dream and the way it can be interpreted and the symptom and the way it can be interpreted. So he's in the same period, he's understanding his first patients who are, with whom he's uh, uh, using a kind of psychoanalysis. Tell me about what first came into your mind when you thought of this particular uh, person who is now your enemy. Tell me about the circumstances under which you developed this illness. And it turns out that themes like the ones in his own dream, anxiety about his wife's pregnancy, uh, conflicted feelings, probably including some sexual desire as well as some shame in relationship to his female patients, uh, deep rivalry and a desire to, to pass blame onto his, some of his dearest friends and colleagues. All of these things figure in normal life, and they, among people who become neurotic, the symptom is like the dream element. And the symptom and the, the dream idea can be interpreted in the same way. And once you begin to get your mind around that, then anything that provides a rich setting for people to behave not as they typically do and not as they feel they must, but as they kind of wish they could in a world where they weren't under such good control. A chance to, as analysts say, act out their repressed impulses. Such a setting is going to be immensely rich in psychological data, and that's the bridge I tried to build. So I think I remember saying, long about fall of 1996 probably, to a Haverford seminar, I had a, an opening session of the seminar that I called Sigmund Freud, Meet Justin Hall. I regard Justin Hall, who was then an undergraduate at Swarthmore College, uh, as the first blogger and the first person who took ideas like uh, Vannevar Bush's 1945 idea of putting everything in your life into a magic personal information system. He called it a memex. Justin actually did that. He blogged about every class and all of his feelings. He blogged about all his friends. He recorded intimate conversations and transcribed them onto his website. He talked about drug use. He talked about sexually uh, acquired diseases. He talked about family dynamics, including 
his father's suicide, and he presented the suicide note, and so on. It's an immensely revealing document. Now, Justin turned out to be a very interesting character, and, and of course, he's still a relatively young man. It's probably unlikely he will have the impact on this century that Freud did on the last one, but something analogous, I'm convinced, is going on. And the interpretation of dreams published in 1900 still stands out for the weirdness of the idea that you would put on paper something as intimate as even a half interpretation of your own dreams if you were Freud and believed that the dreams had the darker meaning that they had. But people do, in fact, put a lot of such information on their personal web spaces, and they betray a lot of the same personality characteristics when they interact with other virtual characters in Second Life and um, World of Warcraft and all the other various participatory and persistent computer-generated worlds. I think the quality of Justin Hall's work relates to his ability in some regard to reflect. And this you don't often see in virtual world settings like Second Life. Can you give some discussion to the idea of the, I guess, the evolution of performance in environments like Second Life and how they are recorded in such a way that could, could feed back into what you were describing with Justin Hall's writing? Yeah, that's a great question, but it's a huge topic, and it's, it's way beyond my expertise. I guess I'm sort of waiting for a new field to develop. Um, the best work done on understanding the, the, the real details of behavior in virtual worlds and their implications um, is actively underway by a researcher who just finished a Ph.D. at Stanford named Nick Yee, and his website is www.nickyee.com. Nick was a thesis student with me at Haverford, and after doing the seminar on Freud and getting interested in study of online games, did a marvelous thesis in the spring of 2000, where he collected thousands of um, questionnaire results, including open-ended questions from people playing EverQuest. He went on to do that research. His personal database now, which is available to the public through nicky.com, has data on over 40,000 people. And the methodology is a, is a mixture of questionnaire uh, research with the questions constantly being improved in the light of the last data, and then a kind of ethnography where uh, Nick became, while he was still an undergraduate, experienced enough in uh, EverQuest at the time so that he was like someone who goes into the village of the Bora Bora and has learned enough Bora Bora and enough about basic customs so that he isn't um, immediately tossed out of the tossed off the island. And people, he developed a real sense of trust with people, and so they're telling him about extraordinary things. I remember after uh, he read to me excerpts uh, of some of the reports people were giving in the spring of 2000. We didn't yet have the um, New Zealand films on Tolkien, but I read Tolkien several times uh, over the. 60s to the to the 90s, it reminded me of somehow being able to drop into um, Middle Earth and coming across two young gentlemen, short of stature, and getting into a conversation with Mary and Pippin, and they would say, well, we... We made it through the mines of Moria, but we lost Gandalf, and we didn't know how we were going to deal with that. And Boromir got kind of strange as we went down along the river, and all of a sudden he went kind of all weird on us. And then these really big orcs attacked, and and they and the people that Nick was <laughs> was hearing from 
knew that they were human beings and not hobbits. They knew that they'd been sitting in front of a computer the previous day and not following the reader. But their accounts had the same kind of vividness and immediacy and richness of connection to their personal lives. And so, on the one hand, you're quite right. You, you read a lot of... I, taught psychology of adolescence for many years, and of course adolescents are major consumers and, and sort of definers of this new gaming culture, it's pretty hard for me to sit down and read a lot of randomly selected adolescent personal web pages, whether they're on LiveJournal or MySpace or wherever. They're not very reflective and very interpretive. And so you're, you're absolutely right about Justin. I mean, he, Justin will tell you about... Uh, recreational drug use on a college campus, and then and he'll let you know that he knows a lot about it from experience. And then he'll get you asking questions about how people relate to the drugs that are the right questions for you to ask. He'll offer you links to erotic material, and he did this, he anticipated all the attempts of uh, search engines to exclude porn sites. So he had, back in about 1996, on his main page, he had something called... Um, the Wild, the Weird, and the Wonderful on the World Wide Web, and one of its links was called uh, Luscious Links for Lascivious Lurkers, and that had a link, as, I hope I'm getting this all right by memory, to something called Pages of Purveyed Prints. So he had a great talent for alliteration, and his uh, college, Swarthmore, let him know that they truly believed in, the, in freedom of speech, and they didn't want to restrict anything he said, but would he please move his stuff off their domain because Swarthmore was getting more hits on uh, Justin Hall than they were on all of their academic materials. And then he created, as Nick E. did later, he created his own domain, www.links.net. But he's an extraordinarily reflective guy. The pity is, and I guess I would say in a way this is a pity about both Freud and Justin Hall, uh, that there wasn't a community they could join. They were setting a standard that nobody else was willing to meet initially of that level of reflection. I think because it's terribly scary and it's very hard to it's very hard to have a real life if people know things about you as intimate as what I think I now know about Freud's life from having closely studied his dream in 1895 or and it must have been the same issue for Justin to to deal with people who knew enough about his very very personal life as they did through reading his pages and he did indeed go through a a, a kind of uh, uh, personal crisis several years ago where he announced that he was basically not doing the kind of daily, detailed, immensely rich personal autobiography that he'd been doing before. And Freud, who became uh, considerably famous in the course of his life by the time he'd written uh, all, uh, uh, all 23 of his volumes of psychological works, but he always regarded the interpretation of dreams as his most unique and important achievement, and he kept fiddling with it, but it was as if it was a work that didn't know where to go because there was no basis for showing systematically that what Freud had done with his own dreams could be done with everybody's dreams. And then one would discover that we all had a great deal in common. And as somebody who has tried to teach various aspects of Freud's theory over the years, much of it is, I think, quite deadly, both to young students who are trying to form a view of how their own lives work and to practitioners who have the business of, of helping people with neuroses. That is to say, my clinician friends who practice this kind of, uh, this kind of uh, rationale for their therapy are most of them brilliant clinicians, who I'm sure are very helpful to most of their clients, but it's not because Freud developed a correct 
scientific model of the mind with his later work on ego and superego and cathexis and counter-cathexis and so on that allows us to understand these lives any better than we would if we simply paid attention to the dreams and the slips and the other little revealing details that Freud had in mind already in the 1890s. And that's the way I would study cyberspace. Now, the servers of the Second Life, World of Warcraft, EverQuest purveyors in uh, cyberspace undoubtedly contain data that would allow us to form very, very uh, telling questions and to study them, but for obvious reasons, people's personal data is protected, and we don't, it seems to me, really have the technology to put all that together very well. Returning the conversation to topics of artificial life in yeah. virtual worlds in particular, what fascinated me with your uh, Gandalf example, your Hobbits and Gandalf example, is that the introduction of intelligent agents, true artificial life agents, into virtual worlds is really in its infancy currently, but certainly something that is actively discussed and early experiments are already being undertaken. What are your thoughts with regards to the introduction of intelligent agents in virtual worlds and the ability for people to have Turing problem interactions with entities that they encounter in these kind of environments? Well, the short, honest answer is I haven't the foggiest idea. It's a question that interests me a lot, but I, I had to acknowledge many years ago that I didn't have the mathematical skill to really understand with any sophistication what was at issue in building something that would deserve the word life. Uh, or the programming skill to really make these things happen. I've known some people who did, and in fact, uh, just a, a, a little bit more Haverford history, uh, another of our students in psychology in the 1990s, he was class of 94, I believe, was uh, Andy Gavin, who had been writing commercially successful games since he was 12 and who uh, went to grad school at MIT to work on uh, uh, issues related to artificial life, which is what his senior thesis had been on. But he... Uh, finished a year and then uh, together with his business partners in uh, Naughty Dog Design accepted a four-game contract for the Sony PlayStation and got into doing things like writing Crash Bandicoot. And I guess what the, the moral I took from that story is very smart people who are good programmers and mathematically sophisticated will continue to develop simulations of uh, biological life that will be increasingly sophisticated. And I'm, I guess I'm agnostic on the question of whether that intelligence will move to a scale where we'll suddenly realize that they're smarter than we are. But on that, I guess I'm a, I'm a disciple of Werner Vinge, who has, been, has written some books that convincingly portray beyond human intelligence, even as he goes around lecturing very convincingly about how once machines become smarter than we are, believing that we know what they're up to will be like believing that the goldfish looks out at us through the bowl and has a clue what we're up to. But here's the way, Tom, I actually think about this. The question of whether there will ever be a super network of computers that's intelligent the way humans are was answered as soon as we built the web. Because the one thing that we have to concede to that for this discussion to make any sense at all is there is one intelligent organism in the universe that we already know of, and that's Homo sapiens sapiens. And they're trying very hard to share their intelligence through the web, and they do it by... Um, tweaking Wikipedia, they do it by <clears throat> putting out, you know, their thoughts about the surge in Iraq, they do it by playing online role-playing games and a variety of other things. And for me, one of the ways that I was fascinated by the Biota.org webpage, and one of the fascinating things about 
the discussions you have there and the way I've sort of been thinking about this is the the notion of alternate reality games. And, and I'll, I'll make another recommendation to your listeners. Ryan Alexander, who works for Knightley, the National, Ar- the National Institute for Technology and Liberal Education, which is a Mellon-funded project, has been around since 2002, has a personal blog called InfoCult, and it really is about online cultures. And Brian approaches this from the point of view of being a Ph.D. in liter- English literature with a, with a special interest in the Gothic. And when the, um, when the strange web presence came out before the movie AI appeared, and it turned out to be a bunch of Microsoft programmers working secretly, there was a sense that something new was afoot in the world. And the, the example I followed most closely was the, um, the, the ARG that developed around uh, Matrix Revolutions. Somebody discovered that there was a website, www.metacortex, spelled, I think, C-O-R-T-E-C-H-S, dot com, which purported to be the corporate website of the company in the, in the skyscraper for which Mr. Anderson works in the Matrix movies. And the website announced a new CEO had been employed, in, employed. There was an employee of the month, and she had her own personal webpage. And if you looked at her personal webpage, she talked about how she was a very sober-minded person, didn't go in for this new age paranormal stuff, but she'd had a strange experience recently going out camping and seeing bats that appeared to fly through the trees that they were flying toward. And so on. Anyway, there were probably thousands of web pages before this was done and tens of thousands of people poking around in them, and it began to look as if the matrix already existed and was taking form in the web around us. And one of the ways that the Wikipedia entry I just looked at this morning on alternate reality games is, is really very good and has tons and tons of links. What you're confronted with when you get involved in one of these is the belief that there obviously are people out there who are smart, and they're obviously playing with your mind, but what if they aren't all people? And what came to my mind this morning as I was thinking about that is there's a moment in William Gibson's uh, Neuromancer, which in a lot of ways opens up this chapter, I think, in human history, 1984. He uses cyberspace and the matrix and so on in the way we do now, where Case, the console jockey whose nervous system has been restored so that he can play some role with the strange uh, guy who's hired him, uh, a, a saga that directly confronts Gibson's fantasies about how artificial intelligences might really manifest themselves. Case is in a big hotel, as I recall, and um, all of a sudden the payphone beside him rings, or maybe it's his phone rings. Anyway, he picks up the phone and it's Case, now we need to talk, and Case notices he's judging the voice and its quality, and then the voice says, this is Wintermute, one of the computer entities. Case hangs up, and as he walks along uh, an aisle past a bunch of uh, payphones, Gibson, of course, couldn't quite imagine the cell phone yet, each one rings exactly once as he approaches it. Well, think how easy it would be to simulate that setup now in Second Life. And think how easy it would be for a bunch of people to agree that they're, they're not going to do the hack and slash. They're not going to interact with either Second Life or World of Warcraft in the way people typically do. They're going to create increasingly believable environments where maybe they role play AIs, right? And then at some point, I think, we will discover that um, there are stranger creatures out there than we imagined, which is pretty much the ending of Gibson's novel. It turns out that when Wintermute and Neuromancer 
get together, as the touring cops are trying to prevent them from doing, uh, they get preoccupied with the fact that there are others out there already. And that's about as spooky as this personality psychologist gets with respect to all that. Now, bear in mind that you're probably communicating with a number of people that actually develop intelligent agents, and with the opening of Second Life in particular, the open source components, many of the folk that listen to this podcast have considered writing these kinds of intelligent agents. What kind of psychology texts, and maybe William Gibson's Neuromancer is one of those texts, should developers of artificial life read, in your view? Uh, there, I think the short answer is probably none. If it's a psychology textbook that anybody's being assigned to buy for a standard American interest psych textbook, it'll get you through intro, but it won't get you to what I'm interested in. You're better off doing some selected reading on the primary sources and then using Wikipedia and other online things to help you understand what's going on. So uh, I get a hold of Freud's interpretation of dreams. There's a new edition about, oh, I don't know, six, five, six, seven years ago by Joyce Crick, who was able to go back to the original first edition manuscript and improve the translation from the German and so on. It's, it's easier to understand what Freud's up to. Um, Jung is the second most interesting person in that psychodynamic tradition. Uh, there are various ways to get into Jung. None of them are entirely reliable, but uh, what worked for me eons ago was reading Jung's sort of memoir. It was an as-told-to book called Memories, Dreams, Reflections, where he talks about how he developed the kind of understanding he did, why he was so fascinated by Freud's ideas, how he thought he outgrew Freud, and he illustrates the tension between himself and Freud with a, one of the finest dreams I've ever read. Uh, hard to know if it's exactly as dreamt as he's telling it years later. But I would, I would look directly for those psychologists who are sensitive to the clinical personality social end of psychology then the kind of anthropological approaches of psychology and are interested in online behavior and culture. And for me, by far the best writer is Sherry Turkle at MIT. I'd get a hold of her 95, 96 book, Life on the Screen. And Turkle had written an earlier book, also marvelous, uh, at the time when she was married to Seymour Papert, called Second Life. And in both books, she relies on her status as a prof of history of ideas at Harvard and the fact that it's Harvard undergraduates and graduate students she has ready access to. And one of them says to her, you know, for me, Sherry, RL is just another window. And if you've watched somebody, let's say I have a young friend who works for Microsoft, and when I visited him back in the 90s, he's sitting at a very good computer on a very fast network, and it's representing all kinds of data at various levels of abstraction. And then there's a little window that's showing a, a helicopter scan of the road he would have to take if he left work now for home so he can see those pockets of free traffic. He could be monitoring stock market returns. He could be playing an online game and so on what's real and, and, and what's not real. The idea that we are building the kind of artificial intelligence that doesn't emulate us or decide to do us in or want to have children by us, but rather does all the things we need it to do to be as smart as we could be, is, I guess, what, what I've been most impressed by. The combination of Google and Google Desktop and a big blog and podcast site that you own is an extraordinary tool. I mean, I've been keeping a diary on a computer more or less regularly since I took an Apple II Plus with an awesome 64K of RAM 
to see the Cross of the Zawiya of Morocco in 1982. And to me now, a word pops into my mind, like the word hypocrite. And I remember a conversation with a Moroccan friend in the night of Ramadan in 1982, and I feed hypocrite and anything about my friend or Morocco into Google Desktop, and suddenly I'm walking on a street, and it's late at night, and we're running into a friend of Hamid's, and we're talking, and he's trying to explain to me how distressed he is by the people who pretend to be pious Muslims and are really hypocrites. And he illustrates that, and he teaches me a hadith and so on. And my diary started out as plain text. It migrated, you know, from the P system to MS-DOS to God knows what. And it's been on the web for many years. Now it's increasingly hypertextual. So if, you know, if I'm listening... If I'm reading a Tom Friedman column and it reminds me of a story in the Middle East, I want to go out and check Al Jazeera on the same story, and I can watch Al Jazeera in English through the web. I can read their text. If I'm uh, listening to a morning uh, music station on Minnesota radio and they play a Dylan piece, I can grab that Dylan piece and make a note of how I reacted to hearing it uh, after all this time. And my note about reacting to it will be a link to it, so that at any later time, in any later environment I can imagine, whether it's my laptop or my tablet or my pocket device or whatever, all I have to do is click and I'm back in the experience. So I'm trying to use the Internet, which was built for very different purposes, as what Vannevar Bush said in 45 we would use it as, a personal prosthesis for our memories. And... Since I have a Freudian view of memory as being the, you know, the, the air, earth, and water of, of, uh, of the mind, uh, if you've got access to all the information in a hypertextual and multimedia sense that you can store in a personal system, that's a pretty smart system. It isn't self-aware. It won't pass the Turing test in and of itself, but it's, but it's manifesting a kind of intelligence. What's possible, given how fast... Alta Vista became Google, became where we are now. Given how fast all that happened, I think sometimes I can imagine 18 months out, but I don't have a clue what things will be like by the time we get a quarter of the way through this century. Now, this question almost returns to the Justin Hall question in some regard, but when you're in a, a virtual world, you don't have access... I mean, if you look at someone in the real world, you can see how old they are, you can typically see whether they've had a hard life and things of this nature. You can see physical scars, ailments. You can see a, a physical history in them in some regard before they even open their mouth. However, in a virtual world, you have no access to that kind of primary information. And as artificial life developers start creating intelligence agents for these kind of worlds, there'll be no way to kind of visually cue whether you're dealing with a real person that has gone through this environment or, in fact, a created entity. In terms of the psychology of the players, do you think the artificial life developer has a responsibility to tag, to visually tag in some way, the artificial life entities in these environments? Or would you like to see an environment where human players don't necessarily know whether they're interacting with other humans? I think I'd like to I'd like people to be able to solicit and have reasonable faith in an honest answer to a question. Are you, are you real or virtual? Are you computer-enhanced or are you plain human? But I think the question will be less and less meaningful very, very quickly. I mean, already uh, one could imagine that my Second Life profile 
could be altered by a script that someone could access if, you know, within some game-relevant way, they knew me well enough to be able to visit me at home, you know? And the difference would be when I'm at the mall or when I'm out at the gaming parlor or wherever, I'm dressed appropriately to those settings, and when I'm home, um, you know, I'm wearing a pair of blue jeans, and I'm not bothering to tuck in my T-shirt, and, oh, by the way, my face looks pretty much like it's 64-year-old iteration and not the 23-year-old idealized version that I still pretend I am on Second Life. And, you know, we know already that, <clears throat> on the one hand, anything that looks like an actual photograph of a human being can be computer-enhanced and generated, and we know already that a lot of people who use Skype to converse with people around the world keep a webcam pointed at themselves. Surely the programming uh, challenge of making that image more and more, making the image that somebody sees in Second Life more and more responsive to the expressions actually passing on my face with varying degrees of verisimilitude to how I actually look. And I guess I, I mean, I just, uh, spinning this off the top of my head, but once people would agree to wear maybe some simple autonomic monitoring systems, so we know heart rate, blood pressure, pupil dilation, and so on, you know, imagine how all of that's going to feed back. There was a strange guy in the late 90s, I don't know what he's up to now, named Jaron Lanier, white guy with dreadlocks, and he got some venture capital when anybody could to build a, a machine that was a virtual reality machine that put you sort of in the holodeck. And the fantasy people had about what that would be like, given that they'd been watching Apple commercials and they'd, and they'd been watching Star Trek, where they actually have a holodeck, and what he could deliver for an astronomical cost was huge, so the company folded. But he talked about people playing reality games, you know, and um, uh, you got the feeling that he imagined constant ambiguities in who you're dealing with. And, and you know, the time span from 1984, which isn't just Gibson, it's also, uh, it's also uh, Sterling and Stevenson and the, Iber, the other cyberpunk writers, there's lots of examples now of people who don't know whether they're dealing with a computer or a person, and people who find out the question was poorly formed because they were really dealing with a hybrid organism. I mean, it fascinates me that the name made up to imagine such a, an entity, Cyborg, quickly became a basis for making monster films. So you have the Borg in the, in the Star Trek universe. You have um, um, you know, Schwarzenegger's various iterations uh, coming back. Nobody seems to be, uh, or not many people, seem to be making movies about you know, people who are real in all the ways that we need them to be real, but what their their behavior, their intelligence, the information that they use as part of their personhood is more readily available to them than any uh, human nervous system could make it so. Why? Because they've got, um, I don't know, an earpod connected to a iPod connected to a network, you know, that's feeding them information so that it, it's, it's running a kind of uh, Googlepedia client that's, that's connected to a speech recognizer. So if I say, gosh, I wish I could remember who it was who acted that role, and suddenly I hear in my earbud the name of the actor or actress, you know, aren't these people going to seem kind of post-human and spooky to us? Aren't they going to seem somewhat computerized? I reflect on Spielberg's AI, where the most human creatures in that film are actually the robots in some regard. Yeah. <laughs> 
bad movie. Interesting concept. Certainly, certainly. Well, yes, left a lot of uh, food for thought, let's just say. You've touched on this briefly through the interview, but what more would you like to see with artificial life development? Well, I, I admitted early on how little I understand, um, you know, the kind of real uh, computer uh, emulations of various kinds of light process, but I'd certainly like to see that work integrated in various ways. I mean, I think, wouldn't it be interesting if you could, in fact, I don't know, have a lab job in Second Life where you could try to develop new biological entities and you'd have very convincing emulations of how that would actually work if you were using biological reagents, but of course it would all be, you know, it would all be computerized, uh, computerized routines. Um, I haven't honestly, I, I haven't known how to think very well about that, and if I were to see a movie or read a novel about it, I might think I understood it, but of course I'm being gulled by the novelists um, skirting the fact that we don't know how to do the science yet. Certainly. I guess I'm really avoiding, I, I don't think I have anything more to say about that that's worth your listeners' time. Well, something we haven't discussed, the idea that all these virtual worlds are currently connected with commercial entities... Do you see there being an emergence of a kind of open-source, web-like virtual world environment, or do you think it will always be connected with commercial entities? I wish I knew. I would love to believe that it would be independent of, at least some of it would be independent of commercial entities, because the very fact that it took so long to develop Second Life, because everybody assumed that if you had a virtual participatory world, it had to be one where you could have armor and... Uh, and uh, a wizard's wand, and there had to be orcs to fight and all the rest of it, rather than that a social environment itself would be, would be interesting enough. It may be that the developers of the virtual worlds eventually become like the phone company. When you think about how terribly hard it has been to get the phone company out of the business of charging us by the second for engaging in a simple little analog audio exchange, and to reduce their profits by that means so that they can become a vehicle for more sophisticated forms of communication, maybe the matrix of the future will, I don't know, make its money by some kind of, you know, creating ambiance so that the virtual world will have uh, Coca-Cola signs and, and uh, ads for virtual Lexus cars, even though I didn't ask for them to be there. I guess I would like to believe, though, that uh, educators who in some ways have been the hardest people to bring on board, whether we're talking about uh, kindergarten teachers or, or people who teach undergraduates, that educators will realize how important it is to understand what's currently being done with these commercially generated environments and will at least extract some pieces of the interesting questions that are posed by that and, and see if they can't explore them in more controlled ways. Um, when I visited Nicky uh, several years ago uh, at Stanford, he was working as a lab assistant in a virtual reality lab. And as I recall, what they were interested in is whether a person you're conversing with mirrors or doesn't mirror your own expression, alters your own perception of the interaction. And it was a very simple VR setup. Uh, you wear goggles, you wear something that monitors the major movements of your body and then your hand in finer terms. And when the software is switched on, the room you're in suddenly looks like it's about twice the size and there's some furnishings in it that you didn't see before. And then a person comes up and the person looks like somebody in Second Life. They look computer generated, but they've got a fairly expressive face. And then various kinds of interactions can take place. And of course, everything is under the researcher's control. Everything is being logged. And 
one could readily imagine, I think, that funding will be available for this kind of work because people will see it as leading to interesting results in the commercial world. And then what we may discover is that we suddenly know a lot more about how to build at least what seem like very intelligent conversational partners. And maybe, and, and this may already be happening in Second Life, I don't know, people are going to have to start opting out. They're going to have to start creating smaller versions of these worlds in which there are more entry requirements than there currently are. It's not enough that you're not behaving obscenely or destroying other people's property. It'll be like some of the rules to get into any serious conversation already. I don't crave any kind of a virtual SAT to see whether you get into a virtual academy, but it would be nice to be judged by the sophistication and subtlety of what you produce and not just by its, you know, its glitziness. And there probably are going to be, because the amount of money being being made and about to be made by all of these technologies, I think, is unlimited. There probably will be synergies between the research world and the corporate world, but whether it'll work to mutual advantage, I don't know. Any final thoughts for the interview? No, I guess what I'd like to do is... is um, see whether anybody responds. Maybe there are other people thinking the same way. Maybe there are people who can set me right. Maybe uh, there's a basis for a, a follow-up at some point down the road. One thing I alluded to in email, and I don't think it's worth getting into now, but it's, it's a topic that I expect will continue to interest me. In order for you to be known, you have to speak. If we treat speech as something you can either type or talk. The internet was a very socially, a very socioeconomically restrictive and geographically restrictive world as it began to take shape. It's become less so, but there's still a lot of obstacles. And the one that concerns me particularly right now is millions of people, young and old, in Morocco and in Europe uh, as Moroccan immigrants and their children and grandchildren <clears throat> who speak a dialect of Arabic, which by tradition is not written down and which has developed over hundreds of years its own, uh, its own oral poetry and music and styles of humor and ways of expressing all the things that people need to express. I'm interested in podcasting by Moroccan young people, and the project is called Aswat uh, Shabab, The Voices of Youth. And my hope is maybe by the end of the summer you'll be able to go out to a podcast site near you if you're one of these, you know, 30, 40 million people and actually hear the kind of language that you think, dream, and joke in, used in a creative way. And by doing that, we bring on board a whole lot of other people who are then going to discover they have their own ideas about how to use cyberspace. They, uh, privileged young Moroccans now who have home DSL, which a lot of them do, and Playstations, think like privileged young Americans. They think it's all about video games and music downloads and, and maybe using your colloquial language to engage in a little obscene chat now and then, it's something potentially far greater than that. But before we can know what it is, got to bring all these people into cyberspace. And on a far broader scale, I recently conducted an interview with a group of Argentinian artificial life developers, and just the lack of contemporary artificial life-related material in Spanish was a huge issue for them and motivated me to uh, translate some of my noble ape stuff to Spanish. So the, the language divide is something which is very relevant to contemporary artificial life. Are there Moroccans who would be willing to, to translate or engage in some discussion? Is there an interface with regards to the language? Yes, there's actually a growing debate. Um, a Moroccan uh, academic, he's a professor of literature who'd written three or four successful books in French, decided to write a little book of vignettes, the kinds of 
vignettes that Moroccans love to generate and tell, and he wrote it in colloquial Arabic. What that means is Arabic uh, is a phonetic script. You could write English or anything else, and people, if they were willing to sit still and carefully pronounce the letters, would know what it sounded like. He brought on a storm of outrage and shock by some people saying, basically, how dare you? You can't write this down. It's an insult to the real Arabic language and so on. But he's done it, and there's a lot of active discussion now about doing this. And interestingly enough, a couple of the Moroccan rappers who are most popular are literally saying in their in their raps, forget the literary Arabic you half learned in school. Forget your struggle to speak French correctly. I'm talking to you in a language we understand, and it's a real language, and people are going to start listening to us, man. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Chawi in Malaysia and Indonesia, but that is the the native language written in an Arabic script, and it's something that uh, was a was a strong movement in that area. And I imagine also has the the same kind of problems that you're describing with the Moroccan. I think it does, and no, I only know that part of the world through friends who've worked there. I've never been there, but <clears throat> but what is certainly true, uh, all uh, Arabic speaking countries have their own local dialect. Moroccan is just particularly unlike literary Arabic. And one of the reasons it is is that the indigenous population of North Africa before the Arabs moved across uh, spoke Berber languages, which are extremely different. And uh, not so long ago, you could actually be jailed in Morocco for writing down the phonetic script in which Moroccan Berber speakers were representing what they said. Now the tide has turned politically, and there are uh, there's a Berber Institute. Berber is being taught to Arabic-speaking kids, and correspondingly online, there are radio stations and call-in shows, and there are web pages, and people are practicing how to use this, the language they actually hear in their heads directly. And um, it can't be far off, if it hasn't happened already, that there will be parts of Second Life, or whatever comes after Second Life, that you get yourself into, and suddenly you really will feel that you're on a Moroccan street, or in a Moroccan market, or coming out after a mosque after a Moroccan sermon or whatever. Well, I know you have to go, Professor Davis, so thank you very much for your time today in this interview. It's been a pleasure, Tom. I hope you'll find some things you can use. Thank you very much. Okay.